Welcome, everybody. I'm Richard Krauss. I hope you're doing well, staying happy, healthy, and safe. We have very interesting guests today, so let's get right at it. Later, we'll meet Yannick Bisson. You know him from 16 seasons as Detective William Murdoch on the very popular show Murdoch Mysteries, but did you know that he's also a director? We talk about Baking All the Way, a new holiday movie he directed and stars in, playing in theaters for one night on December 5th, then premiering on Super Channel Heart and Home on December 10th. That's a little bit later on. First, though, let's get to know Linwood Barkley. A writer of thrillers, he is a New York Times best-selling author with 20 novels to his credit. His books have been translated into more than two dozen languages. He's sold millions of copies and been adapted into films, and no less an expert than Stephen King calls him a suspense master in a class of his own. His latest book, Look Both Ways, was inspired by his decades-long love of car. In the book, he envisions a world in which automotive technology outpaces our wildest dreams and our darkest nightmares as self-driving cars become sentient. Here's Linwood Barkley. Tell me a little bit about how your father's love of cars influenced this and then the, the direction in which the novel went. Sure. Yeah, I guess I suppose Elevator Pitch was my first tech thriller, which was a guy, about a guy sabotaging elevators. But that one, I think, was even though it was techie, it was very rooted in a real world. And I think Look Both Ways is pretty rooted in a real world, but it's just taking a little bit more of a step into a possible future. And yes, my father was an automotive illustrator. And he, you know, if you were to look at the car ads in Life, Look, and Saturday Evening Post back in the 50s and so forth, my dad drew those cars. Mm -hmm. And and one of those beautiful drawings of a 59 Cadillac graces the title page of yep. this book. So I, grew up, right so I grew up, so I grew up, you know, even from I, as my earliest years, watching my dad, you know, work in his, his studio. For a long time, he had a studio in the house with skylights and so forth. And he would draw these astonishing photo-like illustrations, you know, illustrations of caddies and fours and so forth. And so I was always, I, and, and of course, he would buy little model cars and so forth. And not, you know, not just for me to play with, but he would kind of use them as reference. And, and so I grew up all surrounded by it, and I and I loved cars, you know. I and he and I, he and I would go to the car show, and he'd buy slot car sets, and we'd, have, you know, all this kind of great cool stuff. And sadly, I lost him uh, when I was sixteen. He died of uh, he had lung cancer, and and I finally persuaded him to get a cool car, which was a nineteen seventy Dodge Charger, which you know by default uh, ended up my car because my mom didn't drive, and I was doing all the family running around and errands. So at sixteen, I had this Charger. But I've just I've always loved cars. And so with the advent this, if, of possibly of self-driving cars, um, this is not a future that I look forward to because I can't even rely on my ring doorbell to work <laughs> properly. Like it's always doing the wrong thing or it yeah. wants me to re-sign in when I have somebody waiting at the door. Like it just drives me nuts. So I'm not ready to hand everything over, to hand the keys over as it were to a self-driving vehicle. I don't look forward to this future. And I got thinking about it and thought there was maybe a really cool idea for a thriller in this. And so I described Look Both Ways as kind of think Jurassic Park, but instead of dinosaurs, you're on an island with self-driving cars. <laughs> and and it's a big media day. This big company has has persuaded everybody to surrender their conventional vehicles to the mainland and given everyone one of these autonomous vehicles. And on the day of the big media event, a virus gets introduced into the system and all the cars essentially become 
homicidal. Um, so you're like on an island with a thousand Christines. And so it's a bit, you know, so it's a bit, it's a little different than the kind of thrillers people have come to expect from me. And in fact, I wrote this book, I think three years ago. Mm. And and my publishers liked it, but they just really couldn't figure out what to do with it. And because it's, you know, once you start writing a certain kind of book, they're afraid for you to do anything else. And but over time, they thought, you know what, we're going to do this thing. And so uh, in the U.S., they decided to just do it as a mass market paperback. So but in Canada, we did a proper edition and it's coming out in the U.K. in February in hardcover. So, I mean, early reports, people are it's a blast. I mean, it's it's just a I think it's just a really fun, crazy, wild ride of a book, you know. Well, I think about uh, Elevator Pitch and then this book. Elevator pitch made people not want to take elevators. I think this <laughs> book amplifies fears about self-driving cars. And I always think of the Alfred Hitchcock quote where somebody wrote him after Psycho came out and they said, my daughter stopped taking baths after watching Les Diabolique. Uh, and now they, she won't take showers after watching Psycho. What do I do? And he said, well, send her to the dry cleaner. Which <laughs> <laughs> well, right. you know when I wrote when I wrote Elevator Pitch, I had said at the time I said this is a book that will do for elevators what Psycho did for showers and Jaws did for the beach, right? You know? <laughs> and uh, and let's hope that applies maybe to this book about self driving cars. I mean, you're just not going to want to get you're not going to want to put your life in the hands of one of these things. You're listening to author Linwood Barkley on the Richard Krauss Show. His new novel Look Both Ways is available everywhere you buy fine books. Well, the idea of, of cars gone amok is kind of a wild idea, um, but I love that the characters are very much grounded in reality. Mm -hmm. uh, there's, you know, Sandra, who is a widow, and she's she's very much a very real person, while all this crazy stuff is going on around her, um, you know, so uh, as is Katie, and who is the daughter. So how do you balance the elements of a story like this? the more fanciful side of it with keeping characters who are very much earthbound. You know, it's not, I mean, it's not even as though that's something I've sort of consciously thought about, but I think that by, by trying the best I can to do grounded realistic characters and putting them in this kind of environment and this kind of chaos, I think it makes, I'm hopeful that it makes the chaos more believable. It makes the outlandishness of this, of this plot believable because the people who are facing it or who are dealing with this catastrophe are people just like like you and me and so forth they're just they're just regular people mm -hmm. you know they're not uh astronauts you know they're not uh, not somebody from another time and like just they're just us and and sandra you know she's working as a pr person on the island and she's got two teenage kids and she thinks that and she's doing pr for this big car company and she thinks this is the greatest thing ever because her husband died falling asleep at the wheel you know and she thinks imagine if, if if these kind of cars had been around that night when my husband died you know he'd still be with us today if that and and although she's about to find out that um these things are are not all they're cracked up to be these little vehicles that uh that just are going to be the perfect safe thing i mean the idea was that you know if every car on the island if every car on the island is a self-driving vehicle then that's kind of would be the perfect way to test them and because they're all they have kind of a hive mind and they're all aware of where each other are so when they everybody comes to that four-way stop if this car got there at one one hundredth of a second before the other one 
they know. So there'll never be another accident. There'll never be another speeder. It's just going to be absolute utopia, but uh, it's not going to be. Yeah, until they become sentient. So (laughs) (laughs) would it be possible if you had a small island like this with nothing but electric cars on it, that they would communicate with one another? I think that's probably very true. I think that they would. I mean, that that specific thing, if I research that, I don't recall coming across that. But to me, it made sense that if all these particular cars from a particular company and are all linked in to a kind of, you know, a central CPU or whatever you'd call it, they would all be aware of each other. Because mm-hmm. you think that even now, like a company like Tesla, or whatever, when they do an update and they send that out, it's like somebody sending out an update to your phone right. and they're all connected. They're all getting it at the same time. They're all getting this, this, this upload or this download or something new. So the research I was doing into autonomous cars um, was more like the problems that there have been, you know, cars that, uh, and people who've fallen asleep while driving one and cops coming up alongside and saying, trying to get somebody to wake up you know, in a car that's driving along. And, or the fact that sometimes the cars have become confused by bright, you know, like driving into a, a sunset and, and light and dark and getting mixed up. And, and the other thing too, is that, you know, how do you, can you teach a car moral judgments it's like the old trolley you know uh question i mean if you if you know if you go this way you'll kill one person but if you go the other way you'll kill five mm-hmm. can you make a decision to kill one you know we'll run over one and not the others and so as a car is a, you know a car able to make that kind of a, of a judgment and and i i mean i don't think well, we're there there we're, we're not there yet uh for sure in the real world in in the novel the uh, the manufacturers of this vehicle think we're there, we're ready. So this book is populated by these very high-tech cars, but you've also <laughs> managed to work in a 1959 Cadillac Coupe de Ville. Everyone was supposed to, as you say, in the plot, everyone has to surrender their car, but there's this one guy on the island, a retired teacher who has in his garage and does not surrender, has this beautiful, perfectly restored antique 1959 Caddy. And, and first of all, I have on my wall in my office here framed an illustration by my father of the 1959 Caddy. And to me, that car epitomized the sort of apex of the sort of outrageousness of Detroit styling because there were never any bigger fins. No, they had the biggest fins ever, right? Yeah, There was never a bigger fin on a car than on the 59 Caddy. In fact, if you can believe this, this is the kind of a nerd I was as a kid in grade seven. I read Ralph Nader's book, Unsafe at Any Speed. And one of the things I remember from reading that is that people died on the tail fins of caddies, motorcyclists who, you know, hit the brakes and they ran into the back of one and they were impaled on these things. And to me, that was just symbolized you know, when Detroit at its sort of most outrageous during that period. And it's, out, it's an outrageous vehicle and it's just <laughs> beautiful. Like it's just, it occupies like, couple of postal codes like in one end of the car is in one time zone and the other end of the car is in another like they're they're about an hour apart and i just love that car and i thought i think this car could be the hero of this novel and so people of course will have to read and find out how that could be but uh but yeah it was nice that there was this one vehicle left on the you are so prolific. Uh, I'm sitting here looking at you on Zoom in your office, uh, and I assume you spend many hours in there every day. Do you write every single day? No, uh, I mean I've. I mean I. I'm. I'm contracted to do a book a year. 
Right. Some years there have been two, but I basically am on a on a year uh, a book a year treadmill. And so when I'm when I'm in the thick of writing, I do a first draft in about three months. So I'm pretty much locked into here for three months at a time, uh, some part of the year for three months. And then there's a break while my editors have a read of it and we decide what tinkering and tweaking it needs. And then I'm back in here for another. I mean, I'm in this office every day, mm -hmm. but I'm not here sitting writing every day. When I'm writing, I'm probably here at about 8, 8.30 and, and maybe till, you know, after lunch, I'll, I'll quit maybe after 1 or 1.30, something like that. So, so when I'm in the thick of a book, I'm here. And otherwise, I'm in here just dealing with, you know, this and that and so forth. I think that that break is so important. So you spend the three months writing the first draft of the book, it disappears for a little while, and you get a, a different perspective on it by the time you get it back. Your editors have had a look at it for sure, yeah. but you've also had a chance to kind of distance yourself from it and maybe see it again through fresh eyes, and that's so important. Oh, it's true. But what's curious is, I mean, I've had some books that went, the, the final draft wasn't much different than the first. You know, that's when you kind of capture lightning in a bottle. And then I've had other books that I just spent immense amount of time tweaking and reworking. I think I've spent less time reworking Look Both Ways than any other book I've ever done. It just, mm -hmm. the first draft came out, it was just about, I think I just about nailed it through the first time. And so I was very happy with that. This, so I think that, and I think that that comes across in the book and that it moves really well and it kind of holds together well. I mean, I actually started writing uh, the book that would like the book that comes out next year in May, which is called The Lie Maker. That's done. It's all finished. But I started in August writing um, the book that would come out in 2024. And I had to stop working on it end of September because we were going to London and we were doing other things. And that may have been a mistake because usually I try to find a, a stretch of time without any interruptions. But I'll be back to that book probably in another week or two and then i'll just try to work through it and hope it's done by maybe end of january i'm trying to think who it was it might have been elmore leonard who uh always left in the middle of a sentence <laughs> whenever he was going to take a break or go have lunch or something he always left in the middle of a sentence because he knew how that sentence was going to end so he could go back and end that and it would just get him right back into the swing of it i've heard of office doing that or else you know writing the first line of the next chapter mm. or something like that so they know where they're going to go i love to i kind of love to be able to end the day on finishing a chapter but then i may you know for the next chapter i may write a line in sort of all caps of right. sort of this is where i'm going to start tomorrow um but to that that's you know for every writer i know they have a different approach Every, they, everybody's got their own way of doing things, which just makes it kind of interesting, you know? Yeah, I think so too. I, my last two books were so vastly different in the way that they were written, uh, both nonfiction, both uh, about uh, popular culture, one about film, one about music. One took me two and a half years to write. The other one took me three weeks. And it was... <laughs> yes. You're listening to author Linwood Barkley. His new novel, Look Both Ways, is available everywhere you buy fine books. Part of it was the subject matter. Uh, one was dealing with a film from 1970, shot in 1970, so harder to track down the actors and cinematographers mm. and all that sort of thing. Uh, but the other one was a punk rock book about punk oh, yeah. rock. And I wanted it to feel like that. I wanted to have that energy where you're yeah. just throwing yourself at it. And it, I wanted it to sound like a, a three minute punk song. And it kind of does feel that way. So that's cool. 
you know, I have family. I mean, I do it when I've done a lot of book festivals and so forth. There'll be there'll be someone who the audience may ask, how long did it take to write your book? And for me, it's like, you know, three months, three and a half, whatever. And there'll always be somebody who says, it took me five years to write this novel. And I'm always like, was your printer broken? Mm -hmm. Like, what what was wrong? Like, they rebuilt the World Trade Center in less time. But I think that I always always feel that that when you have spent, as I have, um, three decades working in newspapers, that you learn not to be precious about it, that writing is a job, and you just get down and you just crank it out, you know? And and so I think that kind of a grounding, that kind of background is helpful in being able to get your work done because you just think I'm sitting down today and I'm going to not I'm not going to be done until I've written like at least 1500 words, yeah. 2000 would be even better. And that's the way I go at it. Yeah, uh, that's the thing. I, people often ask me about writing and I just say, just do it. Figure it mm-hmm. out yourself. You know, I can tell you what works for me, but I will almost guarantee you that that will not work for you because it took me ages to figure out what works for me. And it doesn't work every day. That's the other thing. That's right. I did an event the other night with Ian Rankin for his Mm -hmm. new book. And a woman came up, a young woman was asking, both of us asked for writing advice. And we both sort of gave her a couple of little quick things. But the one thing I told her was that when you show this to your mom or your boyfriend and they say it's great, don't believe them. Because what else could they say? Yeah, Yeah, that is one of my rules. And not just with... Uh, the writing uh, with anything, uh, television, radio, whatever it is that I do, I don't trust my friends because what else are they going to say? What could they say? Yeah, what could they say? So yeah, just because your mom thinks you're great doesn't mean uh, that it's it's nice to hear, (laughs) but it doesn't mean it's true. (laughs) It's a a variation on a phrase my dad used to say when I was still alive, he'd say, you may be the world to your mother, but you're a pain in the neck to me. You know, it was kind of like that. That's amazing. Well, Linwood, thanks so much. Well, it was a pleasure. Thank you so much. Yeah, nice to see you. Yeah, we'll talk to you soon. That was author Linwood Barkley. His new novel, Look Both Ways, is available now wherever you buy fine books. We have a couple of minutes left in this segment. So before we get to Yannick Bisson, I wanted to give you a taste of an interview that will air on this show in a couple of weeks. Brendan Fraser is getting rave reviews on the film festival circuit for his performance in The Whale. In his first leading role in nearly a decade, he plays Charlie, a housebound 600-pound online English professor suffering from a twice-broken heart, once by the death of his partner Alan, the second by congestive heart failure. With only days to live, he attempts to repair the relationship with his estranged 17-year-old daughter Ellie. Now, despite its dark subject matter, the whale is actually colored by a swirl of love, understanding, and empathy. I caught up with Brendan Fraser recently. Here's a clip from that interview. Do you forget the feeling? People are incapable of not caring. People are amazing. It takes an incredibly strong person to inhabit the body that Charlie does by simple virtue that I could take all that apparatus off at the end of the day, but I still had a sort of swimming, undulating sense of almost vertigo. It stayed with me. And 
it, it gave me uh, a real visceral appreciation or understanding of those who live with eating disorders or obesity. And, and I think that judging by the response that we're seeing from the whale, um, I think that it's also reorienting the way people feel about those who live with that. And it does my heart good. That, that, that changed me. Let's meet Yannick Bisson. You know him from 16 seasons as Detective William Murdoch in the very popular series Murdoch Mysteries. Set in the early 20th century, the show sees him solve a variety of crimes using unorthodox methods. But we're not here to talk today about fingerprinting, blood testing, or trace evidence. We're here to talk about Baking All the Way, a new holiday film he directed and stars in, playing in theaters for one night on December 5th, then premiering on Super Channel Heart and Home on December 10th. In the movie, a pastry chef from Chicago finds herself in Wisconsin convincing a baker to give up his gingerbread recipe for a new cookbook. Yannick Bisson and his adorable dogs join me via Zoom. I read about this and I really liked it. You've been acting since you were a kid, uh, but there weren't steady acting jobs, I guess. So you worked as a builder in between acting jobs. What kind of gigs did you do other than television and, and theater and that sort of thing? Uh, well, it started out doing things for myself, so helping to uh, improve the house that we'd rented and then mm. we'd sort of trade some some labor for 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 value whether it was for rent or consideration of some kind and then um i started to take that a little more seriously once we started to buy houses it was about making my own home better and then uh there was a time where i basically had to make a living and, and and that happened in a few different uh uh instances where I, I sold cars i sold long distance i delivered pizzas i you name it i i've i've done it um and one of those things was uh i was a framing co a contractor i i was actually uh, a laborer but i learned uh, um framing over the course of a couple of years i i can't say i'm you know absolutely excellent at it but that helped me understand homes helped me understand systems and um and then from there i learned a lot of other things i i learned to tile i i can basically build you an entire house that most likely won't fall down it's very cool that you have uh, the life experience of doing all those other kinds of jobs. So often, child actors don't get a chance to have that life experience and move through life and learn a little bit of what it's like to be not in front of a camera. It must make you uh, richer as a person and and probably a better actor because you're you've been out in the world a little bit. Absolutely, I think you know the 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 value of a dollar. I. I, I had some strange spending habits when I was a kid. Um, <laughs> so, you know, um, and I grew up quickly too. Um, it's a very much an adult world. And I think a lot of um, young people putting their kids into show business, they have some idea of what it's like, but at the end of the day, it is very much a business mm. and it has uh, aspects of it that are not uh, uh, child friendly. And, um, you, you you really need to know what you're getting into. For for me, I was very lucky. 
I had great people along the way. I got taught a lot of great uh, uh, tips on the business side as well as the performer side and, you know, social side. It's an adult world. And, and so there are ways that you need to handle yourself and, and there are things that are acceptable and things that are not acceptable. And so I was very lucky to learn that sometimes the easy way, sometimes the hard way. Um, but having those life experiences, I absolutely believe have made me a, a better performer, a better adult, a better Canadian. I don't know. It just, um, being, being more productive, more self-sufficient and, um, and also being able to lend and, and sort of understand, uh, um, what everybody's doing on on, a, on the on the set, you know. I understand how things right. are built, how they're made, and I, and even, for example, on baking all the way, I, you know, understand a lot of the lighting systems, and and, and I was able to offer a solution to make one of our sets more usable um, by pre-lighting some of the bay windows um, in two different ways simultaneously, so that we could flip from day to night with just basically the right. flip of a switch. And they would look good in both instances. So um, the the kitchen that we cook in, you'll see that there are three large bay windows in them, and they convert from Christmas string lights at nighttime with frosted uh, uh, covering, and then in daytime we got sunlight coming through them um, to to just lend some appeal to the set. Right. And that was something that I. I came up with so that we could make use of the set that was in the same building as another set. You're listening to Yannick Bisson on The Richard Krause Show. Find his new holiday film, Baking All the Way, on Super Channel, Heart and Home, on December 10th. That's the kind of stuff that you learn from being on a set forever, for you know yep. decades. What do you think that you've learned by watching other directors? I suppose you learn just as much what not to do as you do what to do. Oh, absolutely. I think the great thing is I've learned from very technical directors. I've learned a shorthand with your um, with your crew, with your right. technicians. I've, I've learned a, a, techni a, a technician shorthand so that I can get them moving at the same time as pulling together the, the actors and giving them a, a, a having a shorthand with them as well that will sort of cut to the chase uh, uh, more quickly because, you know, there's an esoteric aspect to what we do that, that sometimes some directors are really strong uh, uh, with, but then on the technical side, mm -hmm. they, you know, how do I, this is what I want. Right. Somebody help me. Um, so, you know, having done this for going on 40 years now, that I would say is my, my strength is to be able to communicate both sides of the uh, lens and, and all the way upstairs as well uh, efficiently and, and, you know, makes you a bit of a, a star quarterback a little bit. Christmas movies are unique in the sense that they tend to have a longer lifespan. This will come on and probably play every year over and over again for as long as we're putting up trees and hanging lights on them. So I think uh, that's one of the the cool things about Christmas entertainment is that it's a perennial. Yeah, and I try to choose uh, projects that way often because, you know, we already sort of put stuff out there into the ether. And, you know, most of my career projects were just who knows whoever saw it and whether or not 
you know, my family didn't even really realize I was an actor until I was fair ways <laughs> into it. So, um, yeah, and, and Christmas stuff, you know, people, Christmas, holiday, whatever you want to call it, everybody loves it. And it, it has a home for many years. There was one that I did a long time ago crazy for christmas i believe it was called um and it had howard hessman andrea mm. roth myself and some other folks in it and and i still hear about that airing to this day so right. yeah that i i knew that was a wise move you have such an extensive resume as an actor we usually only think of you as being in front of the camera but you made your directorial debut with murdoch mysteries fourth season episode called buffalo shuffle has that always been a dream for you to be behind the camera and direct making entertainment has always been my primary driver mm -hmm. Uh, uh, you know, what, whatever way that sort of showed up in my life, I, I, I welcomed it. I think I, I latched on to the technical aspect very early on. So, <laughs> I'm not sure what's going You're on. You're not alone in that room, are you? <laughs> no, I'm busted. Um, I, I always wanted to sort of contribute even more than just with acting acting you know your your contribution sort of tops out at a certain point and then you go home um but uh with directing you you prep for a long time you collaborate with all the different departments you you find solutions you you help to sort of make the script easier to shoot uh, uh or find holes <laughs> sometimes um and then you also have a little bit of artistic sort of gift that you can add that goes a little bit beyond what you do in your performance. I asked him about a quote that I had heard from him about opportunities. And did this movie come about because he made his own opportunity happen? Here's what he had to say. Oh, absolutely. That sort of never stops. You're always <laughs> looking for your next opportunity as a performer uh, but also as a producer and a director, it really does come down to, you know, a large percentage making your own opportunities. And, and so Baking All the Way was a result of relationships uh, from decades with Lifetime, but also um, with Vortex. Uh, it, it was a slam dunk. We, we were able to make it all happen in a short amount of lead time. And then we had a home for it. So, yeah, it was definitely a result of just pursuing opportunities and definitely you know reputation a little bit baking all the way it's a christmas movie um is there a, a, a particular feel that you were trying to go for christmas movies are kinder gentler usually uh what, what sort of thing were you trying to get across here for people who haven't seen it okay so what i tried to do with this particular movie baking all the way was to hijack the concept a little bit mm -hmm. as much as everyone would let me so I've got some, <laughs> I've got Colin Mockery and his wife, Deb, in the movie and, you know, skilled comedians mm -hmm. for, I can't even say how many years. <laughs> so I've brought them in and, and I've basically with, with our, our star, Corey Lee being, you know, Asian, Canadian, uh, Chinese Canadian, uh, she's she's often being the number two person. So 
So put her number one and, and, and put me number two and, you know, like bring up some of these mm-hmm. people. And, and I leveraged, I, I truly did leverage my, my reputation and, and my uh, career to, to get these people on this movie. Cause you know, the, 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 um, volume of stuff that they're involved in to try to get them here it takes that extra little bit right so and what i did is i tried to not make it quite as hmm, call it sappy syrupy i I was thinking yeah yeah yeah, yeah. uh, yeah and i'm trying to find the word that's not negative but but you know i didn't want to bowl it up the middle quite the same as some of the ones that i've been in in the past so um I made some funny stuff uh, uh, stick and we got to some more serious stuff. And, uh, you know, we have a fabulous newcomer in uh, Bianca who plays the the little girl. She was just an absolute uh, uh, natural. And the funny thing was I wasn't going to be able to use her because she had never done anything before. And she was one age increment below right. what was really manageable in terms of how many hours these young people can work. And I said, you know what? I think she gets this so well that I'll be able to do with her what she needs to do in fewer hours. Right. And and that that did happen. And again, this is part of knowing instinctively what performers are able to pull what off. And and uh and you know, sometimes with young kids, you don't know what you're going to get. And mm-hmm. I just knew right away with her. And actually, my my beautiful, beautiful wife, Chantal, <laughs> insisted when she saw Bianca's audition, she insisted that I use her. So I do have to give her credit. You're listening to Yannick Bisson on The Richard Krause Show. Find his new holiday film, Baking All the Way, on Super Channel, Heart and Home, on December 10th. Casting, they say, is 90% of the film. So Bianca comes along. She's a she's a star. You talk about Colin Mockery and Deb McGrath. Tell me about Corey. We know her from Degrassi, but what was it about her that really stood out for you? Well, another fun thing is that she is a very successful singer. Mm-hmm. So yeah. she's toured around the globe and, and she's constantly uh, uh, involved in the music industry. So guess what? We have a song I, that we can put in the movie. I mean, yeah. you know, that just doesn't happen every day. Mm-hmm. So it it can come off really well, which in our case it does, or not so well. Um, but in this case, I think, you know, we were very lucky to be able to leverage that. And and again, you know, having the opportunity for her to feature some of her music may have helped her decide to do our little movie, you know? <laughs> so... <laughs> This is how these things work sometimes. Do you have a, a favorite Christmas movie that you go to every year? <laughs> yeah, we we do. Uh, so I got a house full of girls, and uh, they turned me on to um, Love Actually uh, many, many years ago. And that actually became our, our uh, Christmas tradition. So every Christmas, we sit down all together somehow, some way, and we watch it. People love that movie. They yeah. cannot get enough of that movie. Yeah, I wonder if you could make that movie today, but I don't know. It's it would be good, a though. very different movie if you made it today, I think. <laughs> a very different movie. <laughs> well, Yannick, thanks so much. I know, listen, I know you're busy. You're moving. Are you, are, is Murdoch in production right now? Yes. So I'm actually yeah. getting in the car as soon as you and I are finished. <laughs> oh, no. And I'm heading, I'm heading to rescue a girl off a of train tracks tonight. 
Wow. Wow. Well, it never stops. That's great. And and congratulations on this. Congratulations on all the success of, of Murdoch. It really is incredible. You've been, are you 18 years in? No, you're 14 years in. That's amazing. 16, Richard. 16, yeah. yeah. Unbelievable. Um, it really is unbelievable. And and we just had an event. Um, we just had the Kitchener-Waterloo one right. where we featured the music of Murdoch with our composer, uh, Robert Carley, who is uh, um, an Emmy Award, Emmy Award nominated uh, composer. But what we did is uh, we had an intro to scoring a TV show. We used all of the music from our show, which is quite good and very recognizable. And then he sort of breaks down these scenes and how he does it. And you have the oh, symphony cool. sort of play these swells and these things and then we talked about a lot of different themes that the series of murdoch has touched on and then we air an episode with the symphony doing every musical cue from minute wow. one to minute uh, 43 or whatever it is wow and uh and we're going to be doing that again at the tso uh, uh coming up soon so it's going to be quite an event uh, um this was in sold out in front of two thousand people and the tso wow. will be uh, uh, most likely sold out um, 4,000 people, that household. So it's it's mind-blowing, mind-blowing thing. And I was just super choked up. That's the whole yeah. point I'm trying to make is it's 16 seasons of all of these episodes flying by as they're doing these musical intros of our series. And I, I did a dry run practice um, in the morning before the, the, the big event on the um, Saturday night. And I couldn't get the words out. So I had 100 people behind me with all their instruments. <laughs> I'm supposed to introduce them. And I had to stop. I was so overwhelmed. It was wow. so incredible. And and I guess it's a mixture of those feelings, the music, the images and all that. But also just how grateful I am for this incredible, incredible opportunity that will forever be a part of my life. That was Yannick Bisson on The Richard Krause Show. We've been talking about his new film. It's called Baking All the Way, and you can watch it starting December 10th on Super Channel, Heart and Home. Big thanks to Yannick for stopping by. Also, a big thanks to Linwood Barkley. His new novel is called Look Both Ways. It's a thriller. It's a tech story. It's kind of a horror novel. It's a lot of things, but man, is it ever good. I think you'll enjoy it. Check it out. Look Both Ways. Big thanks to Lyndon. But of course, as always, my biggest thanks goes to you for listening. I'm Richard Krause. Stay healthy, stay happy, stay safe, stay weird, and we'll talk to you again soon. <laughs>